Well, how's it going, friends? Welcome to another episode of The Genius Life. I'm your host, Max Lugavere, a filmmaker, health and science journalist, and the author of the New York Times bestselling book, Genius Foods. On this episode of the show, I'm super excited to welcome back my good friend, Dr. David Perlmutter. Dr. Perlmutter is a board-certified neurologist and a fellow of the American College of Nutrition. You might be familiar with his work. He wrote the New York Times bestselling book, Grain Brain, as well as Brain Maker. Well, he's back with a brand new book that he co-wrote with his son, Austin Perlmutter, who's also an MD. And that book is called Brainwash, Detox Your Mind for Clearer Thinking, Deeper Relationships, and Lasting Happiness. Brainwash reveals how our day-to-day decisions are deeply influenced and actively manipulated by our modern world. Over the course of the next hour, Dr. Perlmutter is going to reveal how even small changes in your lifestyle choices can dramatically improve your day, your mood, and other aspects of your life. I'm super excited for this chat. I welcome Dr. Perlmutter to my West Hollywood apartment here in LA, and uh, it was a wide-ranging discussion. I'm super excited for you to listen to it. We cover everything from consumerism to the healthy at any size movement, uh, to gratitude, and to occasions in each of our careers, Dr. Perlmutter's and mine, where uh, we received criticism and how we have um, both responded to that. So strap on your seatbelts. This is going to be a fun and illuminating ride for sure. Before we get to it, I want to give a shout out to the sponsor of this episode of the show, and that is Ned. We live in a time where CBD-infused products are ubiquitous. All you got to do is go to your local deli or drugstore, and you will find CBD-infused deodorants, CBD-infused sparkling waters. Although I think in many ways the hype exceeds the science surrounding CBD, a lot of people are trying it. It is a billion-dollar business at this point, and if you do want to give CBD a try for any of the anecdotes that you hear being reported about it online, I say you go for a company that does one thing and does it well, and that is Ned. Ned takes pure and healthy MCT oil and infuses it with a highly potent dose of CBD. You can buy tinctures up to 1,500 milligrams, and Ned has taken the approach of radical transparency, gaining a reputation in the industry as a super high-quality producer of CBD-infused products that you can trust. They share everything openly from their third-party lab reports to the farmer that they uses to their cold extraction process and even the exact location where their single-source hemp is grown. If you want to give anything that Ned produces a try, all you got to do is go to helloned.com and use promo code GENIUS and you'll get to save a whopping 15% off of your first order. They do things right. That's uh, helloned.com, promo code GENIUS, 15% off of your first order. All right, family, we're just seconds away from my chat with Dr. David Perlmutter. I'm super excited for this. Uh, Before we get to that, guys, please take a moment to support The Genius Life. You can do that in one of two ways. You can leave a rating and review for the show on iTunes, like NC Bookworm, who wrote, Love this podcast. Just finished Genius Foods. Great guests and sound advice. I really appreciate uh, that, NC Bookworm, that you are picking up what I'm putting down. And to all you guys out there, thank you so much, as always, for listening, for your time and attention, and for letting me know what I could be improving and what you appreciate about the show. The second way that you can support The Genius Life is by joining my newsletter at maxlugavere.com. All you got to do is head over to my website, enter your first and last name, and you will be on my weekly or occasionally bi-weekly newsletter where I send out important updates. Uh, I don't spam. I don't give your information to anybody else and you can opt out at any time. All right, y'all, I'm excited to get into this chat with Dr. Perlmutter. Um, As you're listening, you can now send me real-time feedback on the episode. All you got to do is send me a text message. That's right. If you live in the U.S. or Canada, you can now send a text message to 310 
310-299-9401. That's 310-299-9401. Save my name in your phone uh, with that number, and you can shoot me a text message to let me know what you think about this episode or any other. I've been getting hundreds, if not thousands, of messages from you guys, and uh, it's been really fun. So I look forward to getting a text message from you. Again, it's 310-299-9401. Now, without further ado, here is David. We're rolling. Dr. David Perlwater. What's going on, man? Just you. Just here in L.A. Uh, visiting Max Lugavere and uh, checking out the place. Yeah, Gen- man. Well, it's good to have you. This is your second time on The Genius Life. Gosh, I've, I'm feeling uh, quite honored by that. We go way back. You yeah. and I, well, your book, Grain Brain, was, I think, uh, lit a candle for so many people um, in regard to how diet could potentially affect brain health. And... Uh, and that was one of the books early on in my journey that I stumbled upon, you know, when all I was experiencing was just abject darkness. And, um, and so it really kind of helped, you know, it, it like inspired me. It opened my eyes to this whole new world of how food could affect, you know, cognitive health. And so, um, yeah, I've been a, f- a fan of yours for a while and I'm grateful to call you a friend. Well, I'm grateful to have had the opportunity to cook breakfast for you. Yes. <laughs> How does that sound? That was really fun. <laughs> you guys listening, you can go to, um, my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash Max Lugavere. And there's a whole series of videos that I shot and produced with David, where I went down to your beautiful house in Naples and you, uh, you cooked me breakfast. You like made me. I think I overdid the omelet a little bit. You but did. I, I heard. Yeah, you made me an omelet. People were commenting that you burnt the eggs. I, you know, <laughs> I do the best I can. <laughs> um, so you've come a long way since. Uh, I mean, figuratively, also literally. But you know, there was Brainmaker, and now you've got Brainwash. So what is this new book about? Well, this book is the uh, manifestation of time that I spent with uh, one Austin Perlmutter, MD, uh, our son, internal medicine specialist. And Austin and I were getting together a couple years, about 18 months ago, and had our feet up. And we were puzzling over why it is that we talk to our patients. We give them the very, very best information that we can based upon our learning, our studying, our conferencing, all the stuff that we do to gain the leading edge of information. We purvey that information to our patients and 60 to 70% of them don't follow through. So three-step process. We handled step one, step two, but step three wasn't happening. So why were people, though they had this information not following through, and it led us to explore a, a, a grander project. And that was, why do people in general not make good decisions these days? And we began to focus on what it is about the decision-making process that has gone awry. By and large, people know what to do. They know they should exercise. They know that sleep is important. They know that they should be eating less crap. And yet, how many people actually are able to follow through? So we wanted to build a bridge between information and action. So we began to explore what is the decision-making process, what is beyond that, the decision-making apparatus in the brain. And we really narrowed it down to two fundamental areas. And for our time together today, Max, I know it's a little more complicated than I'm going to make it. We're going to focus on two areas, that is the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. And what we've really uh, explored is how most people... Uh, seem to be these days making their decisions from a fairly impulsive perspective. 
that it's based upon the primitive, more uh, primitive-based part of the brain called the amygdala, which doesn't look at making decisions by leveraging the conception of the long-term out, out, uh, outflow or manifestations of that decision, but really the very short-term reward types of decisions that people make. What do I want to do? What I want to do for right now? And the future be damned. And that really <laughs> became quite obvious as it relates to global issues with chronic degenerative conditions, diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, coronary artery disease, that people are just making bad decisions. And what we realized is they don't know why they're making these bad decisions, but decisions really based upon impulsivity from a reactive, not a reflective part of the brain, the amygdala as opposed to decisions based upon this gift that we have called the prefrontal cortex, this part of our brain that really sets us apart from other animals. Though mammals and primates have prefrontal cortex, it occupies one-third of the human cerebral cortex, which is huge. In a chimpanzee, I think it's around 17%. So we have this gift, uh, that and the opposable thumb, that really kind of makes us different from other animals. And... The world today is conspiring to keep us away from using this prefrontal cortex to make better decisions. What does the prefrontal cortex do? It lets us think about our decision-making in terms of the long-term consequences, and it also paves the way for things like empathy and compassion and what we call executive function, doing things by making a broader evaluation of their impact, how to do certain things, and how it's going to play out in the future. We in instead, based upon the influences of our modern world, are locked into impulsivity and narcissism coming from the amygdala. And what we discovered is robust literature that looks at various lifestyle choices and how those lifestyle choices keep us locked into the amygdala and away from the prefrontal cortex, really mess up our ability to make good decisions, sleep, exercise, diet, spending time in nature, connecting to other people, how that locks us in by not doing those things appropriately to an amygdala-based life, a life that is self-centered, a life that makes poor decisions, and that causes a feed-forward cycle. So if we're making bad decisions about food, eating processed food, eating high sugars, etc., it increases inflammation. What we discovered is the same inflammation that you and I have talked about over the years being a fundamental player in Alzheimer's and coronary artery disease, diabetes, you name it. That same inflammation disconnects us from the prefrontal cortex. Mm. Think about the implications of that. That the amygdala that we're getting locked into is the area of the brain that is really focused on an us versus them mentality, a fear mentality of the next person. Mm. And that that is highly influenced by a pro-inflammatory diet, a Western diet. And that is the diet that's becoming uh, pervasive around the world. So what I'm saying is this Westernization of the global diet is changing the mindset of the planet making us more fearful, making us more us versus them, more impulsive. And we're seeing that play out across across the world. So, um, you know, in a sense, this 
mentality that this ideology uh, is really uh, existential in terms of what our future can look like or perhaps could look like if we were to be able to influence a change and let people realize that all this bad decision-making isn't necessarily their fault, that the world is sort of conspiring to make you make bad decisions mm. because it therefore it'll feed into commerce, that you'll buy products that you don't need, that you'll buy the foods that you don't need. And uh, we could break that. And that's what we're offering up in Brainwash. And that is a, a program whereby we can recalibrate our connection. We can rebuild a better brain and rewire ourselves back to the prefrontal cortex, back to the ability to make better decisions that will then feed forward and provide further good decisions that will enhance the process. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing this like level of impulsivity and and inflama- you know, inflamed thinking really play out on such a large scale. I mean, it's like, it's not just limited to the kinds of, to the decisions that we make in our personal lives and the foods that we choose to eat, right? I mean, we're seeing it in politics. We're seeing it in the media. It's really... Um, you know, like we're just, it's such a, um, it's such a cascade, but it all sort of comes back to the individual. It all comes back to the individual inflammation, the things that you could be doing every day so that you don't continue to feed that cycle. Exactly. <clears throat> we wanted to focus on building a bridge between information and action. That's where the breakdown is happening. And, you know, people blame themselves and other people blame those people for not making the great decisions, you know, you watch TV shows and you watch and you read the books and it's all well and good. People pretty well know what to eat and they know pretty well you got to exercise, try to get some good sleep. But, uh, you know, it's clear that people are not making uh, those choices and hence the, the global population generally health is suffering. And the first time in history, life expectancy in the United States for the second year in a row has gone down. Mm. That's, that's worrisome. We're not making advances in, in all these areas that we think are going to provide us increased longevity. That is not happening. Despite the pie-in-the-sky promises from some science and technology, it isn't happening. That's what the, you know, the statistics are telling us. And it is, by and large, because people are making maladaptive choices, and they can't help themselves. They can't help themselves because their choice-making apparatus has been hijacked, hijacked by uh, people who want to have your vote in terms of buying their products or acting in a certain way. You know, that's bombarding our brains on our digital experiences day in and day out by, you know, pop-ups and clickbait and, you know, and all the advertising that only wants to sell products that ultimately make this whole process feed forward and continue. So we eat the wrong foods. Those foods make us gain weight. We gain weight. We don't sleep well. When we don't sleep well, the very next day we make bad food choices. And this perpetuates this feed forward cycle. You know, even one night of uh, not restorative sleep affects your decision making the very next day. People who are chronically sleep deprived may consume as many as 350 extra calories each day while at the same time not burning those calories off by higher levels of energy expenditure. And it only takes 3,500 calories to equal one pound of fat. So that's just 10, 10 nights of not sleeping fully and not sleeping restoratively where you've consumed extra calories to gain a pound. You, know, you play that out over a year or two, 
And there's no now, there's no mystery as to the obesity epidemic. Uh, people are making the wrong choices because they're not sleeping well. They're making the wrong choices because they're making the wrong choices. That sounds odd, but wrong choices beget further wrong choices. And we need to break that immediately. That's what brainwash is about. Yeah. I mean, I think what the take home message is that unless you're acting on the information that you have amassed, whether it's in the book brainwash, whether it's the information that you've learned listening to the genius life podcast, you're not in the driver's seat of your life. That's right. And it's not your fault because the driver's seat has been taken from you uh, with good uh, intention uh, on the parts of others. They want to take you out of that driver's seat because there's clearly a move to make, to hope that you won't make good decisions, that you'll spend, for example, more time on the internet. Why? Because then you're subject to advertisements, to to pop-ups. It's the reason... You watch a YouTube video, and guess what? Right, the, the next YouTube video is something you might well be interested. How the heck do they know that? We know how. I mean, it's obvious through AI. They know just what Max is going to be wanting to see next. You know, you watch one thing, the next thing is just a little variation, but based on your previous experience. And while you're watching that, sure enough, the ads pop up that you could watch your video after five seconds, and now you know you can watch the video or whatever it may be. So it's it's active. I mean, I don't want to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but I'm not telling people things or we're not telling people things that they've not heard before. But I think the main mission uh, for Austin and me at the, be- at the beginning of the book is making this very clear to everybody that this is going on. And it's not just that it's going on, but it's affecting you. It's affecting your happiness. It's affecting your longevity. It's affecting your resistance to disease. Uh, and it's leading to worse and worse choices that perpetuate this. And more importantly, as we then reveal later in the book, you can break this cycle and regain control. You can bring the adult back into the room. You know, as you as you were talking about all the algorithms now that are just you know put in place to to keep pressing that button in our brains that causes the release of dopamine. I kept thinking about the irony of the fact that I still, despite all that, I can never find anything to watch on Netflix. You know, it's just, uh, despite all the algorithms, I spend most of my time scrolling and not, you know, just like, it's, uh, it seems like a, well, like I, a hopeless endeavor. I, I want to be clear that we're not uh, castigating uh, our digital opportunities. Uh, we wrote the book based upon, you know, unlimited access to information that is so wonderful. As you know, writing, you've written books, you know, it's great. You can do all your research. So what a powerful and wonderful tool the internet is. And, you know, to some degree, social media can be a positive experience. So we talk about looking at our digital experiences by using what's called the test of time. T, how much time are you willing to invest in that uh, day-to-day experience? I, is your time spent intentional? Uh, Do you have a purpose for what you're trying to achieve? M, while you're on digital media, are you mindful of what's going on? Are you watching to see the level of manipulation? And E, is it enriching for you? Is it a positive experience? And if it's not, it's time to turn it off. Hmm. Can you, I mean, that, that, uh, that acronym is, is brilliant. So time, can you just repeat like what the, each of the letters stands for? So we, it has to pass the test of time. Pass the test of time. Okay. T, how much time did you... cut out that you're going to invest. And let me just hold at the T for just one second. Because, you know, in America, adults spend over six hours a day 
as an average in front of one screen or another, whether it's the TV screen, the pad, or uh, you know, on your, on your smartphone. That's a lot of time. It means the average adult is going to spend 22 years in front of a screen. <laughs> and it's, it's, you know, it's a hell of a metric, but especially when you consider that when you're doing one thing, you're not doing something else, i.e. when you're parked in front of that screen, you're not moving around in general. Uh, you're not interacting with other people. You're not exercising. You're not meditating. Uh, you're not uh, planning and cooking your meal. Uh, and it may very well be disruptive to your sleep. So it's really affecting other lifestyle opportunities. So that's the team, uh, the T. I dedicate X amount of time to doing research on this book or to connecting with my friends on social media. X amount of time, that's what I set aside. Because as we all know, uh, you say I'm, t- I'm going to uh, you know, sp- uh, spend 10 minutes on Instagram. Uh, it, you know, Partitioning off 10 minutes on Instagram is a good way to kill two hours, right? Yep. So that's the T. I is intentional. What is my goal to connect to my uh, high school reunion uh, site so I can make the re whatever it is? That's your goal, and it's not to surf on Amazon mindlessly to buy stuff that you think is going to make you happy. M. While you're engaged, are you mindful? Are you literally engaged, keeping uh, your wits about you in terms of what's going on? You know, are these pop-ups that are happening? Uh, am I being distracted? Am I looking at them? Uh, you know, am I going elsewhere down the rabbit hole? And finally, E, is this experience moment to moment that I am being mindful of, is it a positive enriching? E is enriching experience for me. That is the test of time. And I think it's good to keep that front and center while you're doing your, uh, you know, on, when you're on your screen. And, and hopefully that's not in the evening time when that blue light is going to affect your sleep quality. Yeah. So in the, in this constant game of tug of war between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala, and I, well I, said the way that you described it, it sounds like almost like a Greek tragedy, you know, but how do we, so how do we neither the, the amygdala is not bad, right? And the prefrontal cortex is certainly not all good all the time, right? Because it can lead to neuroses and things like that. But how do we basically live our lives in a way? What are some of the key takeaways? Um, you know, that my listeners can, can sort of get from this that can help us live our lives in a way that is more sort of prefrontal, less amygdala. Well, let me, let me first, before I answer that question, answer, uh, respond to your comment that the amygdala is not all bad. That's a very important comment because, uh, you know, the amygdala does serve an important role and that is to allow us to have an instantaneous response to a perceived threat that we don't have to cogitate on. Hitting the brakes when there's something in front of your car suddenly doesn't isn't something you're going to want to sit back and, well, that car just sort of like came into my lane and is maybe about to hit me. Perhaps it would be the prudent thing, you know, planning for the future that I go ahead and slow down. No, I mean, that's when the amygdala says, bam, hit the brake and, oh, and then you think about it afterwards, you take a deep breath. Uh, so uh, inflammation, we talk about always very negatively. And generally, you know, the degree of inflammation and its uh, persistence is, is a downside. But inflammation is how we respond to infection, how we respond to uh, invaders in our body, whether they're chemical invaders or biological invaders or uh, even substance, uh, that might, a thorn, for example. So there's an upside to those processes and... Uh, Gosh, I said that as a Canadian, <laughs> didn't I? <laughs> um, but anyway, so there's an upside, and it's it's about um, you know time, 
uh, and and uh, intensity of those responses. Uh, a low level of stress, as you well know, is uh, a positive thing. Um, but uh, a continued exposure to stress or a high level of stress can be damaging. So low levels of these things are good for us, but when they become unchecked or persi- persist, then that becomes an issue. So what are some of the things then uh, for listeners to consider? Number one is awareness. Uh, it's really fundamental. We bring this out of Brainwash that people begin to understand the degree by which our modern lifestyle is locking us into amygdala-based functionality and decision-making. And it's perpetrated upon us by our modern life, by our digital experiences, by advertising, by the enrichment of our food with sugar. You know, of the 1.2 million foods sold in American grocery stores, 60 plus percent have added sweetener. Why is that an issue? It's an issue because sugar in the food hacks into a part of our brain, which was originally very functional for us, that we crave sweet because it told us in our hunter-gatherer days that the food was ripe, it was safe, and it allowed us to store fat for the winter. But now it's an entry point for our exploitation the more we give into that, and it's so hard to resist, it feeds back to higher levels of inflammation through a number of different pathways, through changing our gut bacteria, increasing gut permeability, by modifying proteins through a process called glycation, all of which lead to lighting the fire of inflame, inflame, inflammation, which does what? It enhances what we've called disconnection syndrome, disconnecting us from the prefrontal cortex. So, We really want to nurture the ability of the prefrontal cortex to calm the amygdala down, knowing once in a while the amygdala is going to fire off and it's going to help us. But by and large, when the amygdala is on call doing its thing day in and day out, we're making crappy decisions. So how do we do that? Well, it's compelling. And we offer up a 10-day program which leverages nature exposure, better sleep, exercise, the right kind of diet, meditation, other lifestyle interventions. But even just choosing one to focus on will help you uh, reduce inflammation, reconnect to the prefrontal cortex, and that will then spur the, the overall adoption of the other lifestyle factors and then some. So whether a person might be uh, more inclined to change his or her diet or to begin a meditation program or get out in nature for 20 to 30 minutes a week, all of these things are going to help redefine their relationship between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala. Again, that separation of the prefrontal cortex out of the decision-making process is what we define in the book as disconnection syndrome. It separates us from the part of the brain that lets us consider another person's viewpoint. And, you know, these days we need to do that. It's not that all Democrats are bad or all Republicans are bad or that uh, the Dolphins are a bad football team and <laughs> my New York Jets are much better. I'm a better person because I'm a Jets fan or that my religion tops your religion. Your God is different from my God. It's about connecting to that other person who has a different worldview and looking at the world through his or her perspective and thinking about it. Maybe you don't agree with it, but to make a finite decision that that person's viewpoint is wrong and mine is right, 
That's where we're going these days, and we've got to stop this partisanship as it crosses, uh, so you know, looked at through so many different lenses of religion, of politics, of even science. It's got to be that we come together and welcome other viewpoints. That is the only way that we're going to make uh, process, uh, progress, you know. Uh, the more we adopt this uh, notion of digging our heels in, we're never going to learn from other people if that continues. And that is a mentality that is fostered by an amygdala-based us-versus-them ideology that uh, we can break. Mm. We need to break. You know, in fact, uh, our future depends upon that. We know that when people tap into the prefrontal cortex that they are more environmentally conscious, for example. So even concern for the planet uh, is something that is fostered by being more connected to that part of the brain, reconnecting and offloading what we call disconnection syndrome. You talked a little bit about the value of uh, sleep in terms of your next day, you know, dietary, uh, you know, your, your food choices, but um, you know, under the umbrella, under the purview of all the things that the amygdala uh, sort of, you know, can influence, I think it's important to know that on one night of poor sleep, your amygdala becomes about 60% more reactive. That's right. The study you're referring to uh, was a collaborative study from uh, researchers at uh, one institute was MIT and the other, 2007, Austin's helping me at my <laughs> age, which is great. Um, and, and, you're you're exactly right that it is what the study actually did was uh, was something called functional MRI evaluation of these individuals. Some were sleep deprived and some were not. Those who were sleep deprived had a much greater response to neg to aggressive photographs. Mm. So they were shown images. Both groups, sleep and non sleep, were shown these images uh, that were disturbing. And those who were sleep deprived had a far greater activation of their amygdala, sixty percent than uh, those who had not uh, had a good night's sleep. So, hey, we're all going to be challenged by things in the course of our day that are threatening uh, or disturbing or, you know, potentially activating the amygdala, whether somebody looks at you funny or bumps into you in the groceries line or who knows what. But your ability then to respond more appropriately is compromised if you haven't slept well the night before. I think we all are aware that we're more irritable. And what does that mean? Irritable means that uh, your uh, reactivity is a lot li more likely to happen. Uh, as uh, Austin, our co-author, uh, talks about, it's like the thermostat uh, the, uh, on your alarm system at home, uh, that the alarm system keeps going off just because the wind was blowing now. <laughs> it doesn't mean somebody was on your front porch, that you're, you're just far more sensitive and you know, you don't, you're not able to rein yourself in as readily when you haven't slept. What does that then happen, uh, cause to happen? Uh, bad choices. And those choices include making poor decisions as they relate to your lifestyle choices, like the food you will eat that day, like the exercise you may or may not get, and like your sleep hygiene choices moving towards the next night. Uh, you may make bad choices and then say, keep looking at your smartphone and say eight o'clock, 10 o'clock at night with the blue light that keeps you up or watch a, uh, a television program that's unnerving and that keeps you from sleeping well. And thus it continues. And we've got to break these cycles, each and every one of them. But the good news is that if we break just one cycle, it's a powerful entry point for all the others then to fall now that you're able to make 
slightly better decisions. So whether our entry point is getting a good night's sleep or spending time in nature or uh, changing your diet or finally getting your yourself to exercise a little bit, they're all entry points that will then pave the way for better decision-making. How does nature help uh, with, with that sort of reining in of the amygdala? So everybody knows that they feel better when they get out in nature. I mean, it's a common experience. And what the research shows is that nature exposure, even just a small amount of nature exposure, is associated with reduced inflammation and reduced cortisol levels. And, uh, you know, in in Japan, uh, this has been a huge focus of study, uh, not as much here in the States, but... You know, when I say nature exposure, uh, people think, well, that's not for me. I don't live near uh, Yosemite, and uh, what am I going to do? Uh, you know, and, and what the research shows is really very interesting. Uh, it, and it, it demonstrates, for example, one study that measures salivary cortisol levels, how much cortisol is in your body based upon a saliva measurement, which is something that's very portable and very uh, user-friendly. You know, people were put in various environments, they spit in a tube, and then how much cortisol was present. And the study demonstrated profound reduction in salivary cortisol in people living in an urban environment who simply went to the park, who were simply near some trees. And even uh, more compelling is the research that shows even reduction of cortisol and therefore better prefrontal connection in people who have a plant in their place of work or in their kitchen or in, like I see here uh, (laughs) during our podcast, there are plants all around. That is powerfully beneficial. And beyond even having the plant here, having a photograph of a natural environment can even provide benefit. So it's not the whole solution, but it's certainly a very important part. So we know that exercise is important. We know that nature is important. We know that reconnecting to people is important. So here's uh, one way of hitting hitting at least a triple, and that would be to go out in nature uh, with friends and walk around. You're breathing good air, you're getting your heart rate up because you're walking and you're with another person. You know, that seems simple, but it's powerful. Why do you, stepping back a little bit, why do you think we've allowed ourselves to get to this point where you know, it's uh, one of the things that I say in my book, Genius Foods, you know, if you were to like not walk your dog ever, that would be animal abuse. And yet somehow we find ourselves in a situation where we, we apply that same behavior to ourselves and we think it's okay. I think there's a lot of subterfuge at work that we're not aware of that, uh, there are, you know, clearly efforts underway to sabotage our ability to make the right choices, to undermine our ability to make the right choices because there's great value in us making the wrong choices. As an example, there's great value if you were to spend eight hours online surfing. Why? Because you're going to see all kinds of stuff uh, that it could entice you to make a purchase, for example. So your eyeballs are extremely valuable. Where you go on the internet has great value for others. So there's great eff- there's great effort expended and great expense expended to the tune of uh, billions of dollars to keep you engaged. There's great value in manipulating your food so that you keep coming back for foods with the added sweeteners. Why? Uh, because that's hacking into that part of your brain. It's an entry point. And therefore, once that happens, your decision-making is further degraded and you're going to keep doing it. So uh, it's so unfortunate. But you know, one of the main efforts uh, in the beginning of our book is to call it out. 
Because people seem not to be, you asked a very good question, how does it happen? Why does it happen? People don't recognize that this is ongoing day in and day out. And people want to get better. They don't want to be overweight like they are. Uh, 70% of American adults now overweight or obese. No one looks in the mirror when they're that way. Despite media efforts to normalize it uh, in terms of advertising, this is not a cosmetic discussion we're having here. It's a health discussion because excess body fat is pro-inflammatory and inflammation is not a good thing. I am not... Uh, fat shaming here uh, from a perspective of cosmetic, I'm, uh, I'm saying that carrying excess body weight, higher body mass index is associated with some pretty bad things uh, like you and I have talked about before. Uh, but that said, <laughs> higher body mass index is correlated with poor decision making keeping us away from the prefrontal cortex. And it is terrible use of words, a feed forward cycle in a very literal way. So what's important for brainwash is calling it out. And so why that's important is so people will finally recognize that these bad decisions are not entirely their fault. The world conspires to make people think that, oh, I, I'm just a bad person because I can't seem to make the choice to eat a better diet or go to the gym or whatever happens. And we're trying to uh, create this revelation that, guess what? It's not your fault because all of this has been uh, conspired to manipulate your decision-making. So I think you know that's the empowering part of the beginning of the book is that, hey, your decision-making uh, ability and your choices have been manipulated, not to your benefit, but for the benefit of others. And so once people get that, then they recognize that they can take it back. And uh, I guess there will be you know, some who will not appreciate the fact that we're finally calling this out, that our food has been manipulated, our digital experiences have been manipulated, our lives are manipulated, and it, it's happening in the background. And it's time that that's put in the foreground so people can, can realize what's going on. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I know you'll appreciate this. I recently, because sometimes I battle with people in the fitness community, not battle. We have, I would say, constructive discourse, but people in the fitness community on Instagram. And I made a post recently where I said that, um, you know, you're not overweight because you forgot to count calories. You know, you're overweight because you've inherited a food environment that begs you to overeat. That's right. You know, um, this body fat that is uh, such an issue for us, I mean, we, in my day, considered body fat to be a storage depot of calories. That was it, right? You ate uh, excess calories and they were packed away in body fat so that when you suddenly were stranded on the desert island, oh, goodness, you'd have this depot, right? Well, we recognize that body fat is actually uh, very influential in our choices, that body fat, for example, it highly influences the production of ghrelin, which is our eat uh, is our it's our it's a motivation for us to eat more food. It enhances our appetite. Think about that. The more body fat you have, the greater is your appetite. As Gary Taub said, uh, we don't get fat because we overeat. We overeat because we're getting fat. Hmm. And uh, it's interesting, uh, as Austin pointed out to me earlier today, you know, cancer cells will manipulate their environment for their own survival. They will uh, keep 
the immune system at bay. Uh, they will um, manipulate the growth of blood vessels called angiogenesis to nurture themselves. So they're fighting for their survival in your body. And now we recognize that fat cells are doing the same thing, that they're fighting and manipulating our physiology so that we'll make more and more uh, body fat. And uh, what an interesting perspective. Now that you recognize that, you look at fat in a different way, that uh, having higher body fat makes you eat more of the wrong foods, compromises your decision-making, so you eat more of the wrong foods, gain more body fat. And that's one feed-forward cycle. And another is, I believe I mentioned earlier, is that the more body fat you have, the poorer quality of sleep you get. And when you have poor quality sleep, guess what? You make bad food decisions. Hmm. Now, why why is that? Uh, why does being heavier, having a higher BMI, for example, uh, how does that influence sleep? Is it because of like the pressure that you know the higher risk for apnea or a myriad of other that, that's certainly, factors? I'm that's sure. certainly one way. Uh, higher levels of body fat, of, of course, from a structural perspective, can inhibit the air can inhibit the airway associated with uh, sleep apnea, uh, airway issues. Uh, but beyond that, having higher levels of body fat makes us make worse decisions. And those decisions, because we're locked into the amygdala, we're not taking advantage of the prefrontal cortex. Those decisions can have to do with the environments that we choose uh, to sleep in. It's why we might stay up at night and binge watch programs on Netflix. It's uh, why we then make bad food choices. So our whole decision uh, making uh, process is compromised and therefore we don't sleep as well. Yeah. When it comes to the prefrontal cortex, it does so much for us, right? I mean, it's involved, I think you mentioned executive function earlier. What is that for listeners who are not familiar with that term? How you execute things, uh, how, right? Exec, how you do things. Uh, and, uh, you know, a lot goes into that. When you do a purpose, when you engage in doing a purposeful act, you need to think about how to do that act, what information you can bring to bear in terms of carrying out that behavior, and importantly, how that uh, action that you engage in will play out in the future. What will be the consequences or the play out of that action? That's what is called executive uh, executive decision making, and that is a prefrontal cortex activity. That's not what happens when we're acting from the amygdala, when we're suddenly quite impulsive, that somebody uh, says something that you don't like and you immediately tweet something right back and say, oh, this person is a jerk, and uh, that's impulsivity. Uh, so that's not what we want to do. Um, several years ago, somebody wrote a very scathing article in a very well-read national magazine about me, uh, because I had changed my messaging over 25 years, uh, because 25 years ago, I was telling people probably should eat a lower fat diet because there's some research that relates to how it's good for your brain, et cetera. And we were all saying low fat at that time. Uh, with the evolution of the science in nutrition, uh, I learned uh, that there was really good science indicating that it's not the low fat part of the story. It's the low bad fat. Eat good fats, and that might be good for us. Uh, Mediterranean diet, olive oil, etc. Your listeners have heard the story many times. But nonetheless, it didn't prevent this person from doing that uh, a bit of due diligence and realizing that the reason the messaging had changed was, number one, we were refining the message, and number two, that refinement was based upon the very best peer-reviewed science that I was able to review, and that you know, it's actually a good thing that Dr. Perlmutter or anybody 
change in the health world changes his or her messaging over time if it's done by looking at where the science is taking us. But it didn't prevent that individual from aggressively attacking me. And I will admit that when, the morning that that article was published, my amygdala lit up uh, momentarily. And uh, when I was uh, uh, when the intervention happened with my uh, uh, publicist and our the, uh, publishing of our books and uh, other members of our team, uh, what are you going to do, Doctor Promoter? What are you going to do? I said, God bless him. <laughs> I mean, because it was this individual's best attempt at gaining his notoriety. Uh, oddly enough, for a book that he had been uh, he was putting out that week, and the whole purpose of the thing was to engage. And how convenient. Oh yeah. And that's the way it goes. But I remember that you did, you handled it very gracefully. And, uh, you know, people that, people that, that knew your work and, and, you know, like me, uh, you know, for, as an example, we saw through it, you know, a hundred percent. So it's, uh, but the silver lining obviously is that it left you with all these insights, you know, that you can At now very, share with the world. I, I, so I'm grateful yeah. because it, it really showed me what the playing field is like and challenged me to evaluate my response. And I, so I'm, I, I'm grateful. It's a scathing article. It was just a, so aggressive as can be. And I feel I'm uh, better for it because it really laid out how the world is and how we can learn from these experiences. There's actually, I've never shared this, but there's actually some, what one person just from, a, I think it's like McGill University up in uh, Canada wrote an article about me. And it was like, after my book had come out and it was the only negative thing anyone really has ever written about me other than just like anonymous commenters who get annoying on Instagram or YouTube. But it was an article it like the headline was something like Max Lugavere and the bait and switch maneuver. Mm -hmm. And in the article, he doesn't actually criticize anything I say. In fact, he praises my message. He says Max is actually very That's balanced. Odd. I've seen him on an inter you know, doing an interview. But when I signed up for his mailing list, he, uh, he, he, talked, you know, he sent me an email about the value of blue blocker glasses conveniently with a link to buy uh -huh. the glasses or something like that. I wouldn't be surprised if in a year from now, Max has his own line of brain boosting supplements or something like that, you know, but it was a, it was a, that was a moment where, you know, oh my God, somebody's like writing an article about me. And of course, anybody who knows me, anybody who's like followed me for any significant period of time knows that, you know, my motivations have never been about money or anything like that. So, well, you ask yourself, uh, am I going to allow this person to challenge how I feel about myself? Who is that person who is going to threaten my self concept? And, uh, it just, there's no value in that whatsoever. I mean, I, I'm listed on quack busters <laughs> along with, um, you know, some of my, uh, you know, colleagues, Dr. Jeffrey Bland, Dr. Mehmet Oz, and, uh, Dr. Andrew Wow, we're all listed as quacks because you know what? We don't toe the line of uh, conventional medicine and think that everybody needs drugs for this or that problem. That yes, drugs are effective and useful at times, but there are other things that matter. And guess what? Lifestyle choices are important for health. Something that isn't taught in medical school even today, certainly wasn't taught in my day. And it turns out that that's how you keep people healthy is by making good lifestyle choices. So, yeah, there's, I mean, there's, there's always going to be a resistance, I think, because 
there's just so much commerce, you know, and it's like, I, I value conventional medicine. And certainly when I was in the darkest moments with my mom, you know, going to these cathedrals for academic medicine, I, you know, I prayed that they would have some kind of solution for her. And I'm not going to say that, that I put her on a diet and that served as a solution to her either. But I think it's like, we have to make, we have to have room and be open-minded to, you know, and inclusive to nutrition, to lifestyle medicine, to um, more advanced testing, to a more, you know, uh, holistic approach. Because, I mean, there have been so many instances where just, you know, traditional medicine, Western medicine has fallen short and I, you know, my life has been profoundly affected by it. So I'm, uh, well, as you know, yeah. your life and my life. So mm-hmm. I, I went through the same situation with my father and, um, it's, it's, what are we doing? So now we're sitting here, uh, having a discussion about the importance of getting this information out. So maybe one person on the planet won't have to go through what you and I both went through. And that is this devastating experience of having somebody who you love, uh, go through a neurodegenerative event, which it's, it's, it's really, really rough. And, uh, when we recognize, uh, that, by and large, Alzheimer's is a preventable disease, uh, and no one's talking about it. It's it's a bit challenging, you know. You participated in our summit and our uh, online docu series about, you know, what your experience was. And as you know, we had some uh, highly regarded uh, experts from institutions around the country talking about this fact that the li- uh, our lifestyle choices, in fact, are very important things to leverage if we want to preserve our brains and be somewhat resistant to this devastating condition affecting 5.8 million Americans for which there is no cure whatsoever. Uh, you know, and when I say that, I'm thinking of the fact that many of these people are taking medications ostensibly to help them with their Alzheimer's medications that were reviewed in JAMA, Journal of the American Medical Association Network, uh, in 2018 that were revealed to actually speed cognitive decline. Alzheimer's drugs that are causing people to decline more readily, uh, more rapidly when they are taken. Uh, And to the tune of a billion dollars a year. So I think that really stands as a stark example as to respond to, uh, you know, an earlier query as to how is this is happening. And, you know, it's all about awareness. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't say with any confidence that the drugs that my mom was on and she was on a handful, uh, were of any help to her. And I think, you know, my, my theory is that they probably made things worse to be honest. And, you know, say that that author, the, you know, the website that you mentioned you were listed on, you know, I mean, stumbling upon your book, you know, and I've used, I've used the term diagnose and adios a million times. I I feel like I, either I coined it or I, you know, at this point I've printed it everywhere and I've said it in a million interviews, but it's true. In, in every instance with my mom, there was no, there was no point at which diet and lifestyle was brought up. Um, address, you know, nobody, you know, none of my physicians have ever addressed my risk, you know, because I, you know, now have a risk factor in my mom. Um, and so your book, uh, just opened a door and, you know, it's, uh, it was a starting point. And, um, and I think many people, millions of people around the world would probably say the same thing about you. So, 
And and uh, again, plenty of people probably uh, are would derogate our ideas because they want to foster this notion of of a quick fix pill. There is no pill. We know that. If there were, I would have given it to my dad, and uh, I would have been writing prescriptions for it to the, the hundreds, if not thousands, of patients uh, that we we've treated. Uh, but that said. Uh, so we write books about what are the choices people should make. Mm-hmm. You've written, you have your new book, The Genius Life, about what are the choices that people should consider making. Great authors are out there writing terrific books. Uh, you know, Dr. Lisa Moscone, for example, and Dr. Mark Hyman, people writing really good information, giving people great information, but none of it's worth anything. Totally worthless unless people act on that information. And that's the level of... Uh, of engagement that we are looking for. How do we now not approach what uh, people do, but how they decide to do that in the first place? So that's where the breakdown happens. It's not that people don't have the information. You know, so many people have bookshelves of information. Watch every PBS special, watch these programs, and they pretty well know what to do. Pretty well people know that they got to eat less sugar, and they got to get outside and exercise a bit. It's, you know, we, we don't have to rehash this. But what we do have to emphasize is that the, the ability to make that happen, to decide to do that, is where we need to focus our attention. And that's what Brainwash is all about. I love that. There's an amazing quote. I forget who said it. But, you know, no matter where your journey inevitably is is going to take you. It's all about that first step. So what's the first step that listeners of this podcast, after hearing this amazing conversation that, you know, that we just had, because we're almost at the end, what's the first step that listeners should take? The first step is to embrace the notion that you can do this. Uh, it is that, uh, it doesn't matter what you end up doing to take that first step, whether it's, as we describe in the book, to concentrate on getting a better night's sleep or changing your diet, or I'm not saying, and I'm saying, or, get out in nature or commit to exercising. We're only asking for 10 days. So the first step is to commit to a 10-day regimen that may involve any one of those, but we're hopeful that it leverages all of these. In fact, every day in the 10-day program looks at a different aspect of this program. Uh, Journaling, uh, expressing gratitude. These are all fundamentally critical ways that we can reestablish connection to the adult in the room, to the prefrontal cortex, and and take the control stick, the, the, the remote control, out of the hands of the amygdala and really bring us back into the, the driver's seat and make better decisions that will then foster better decisions. So, so that's the major first step. That's amazing. Well, I've got one last question for you, but before we get to that, uh, how can listeners find you on the internet? Where can people pick up your book? So Brainwash is available everywhere. Uh, the website is brainwashbook.com, oddly enough. <laughs> uh, available at, uh, again, everywhere. I'm, I'm approachable on drperlmutter.com, drperlmutter.com. Uh, I'm on Instagram and uh, Twitter as well, <laughs> rarely. <laughs> so uh, I don't know if those are robust uh, uh, access points for me, but mostly drpromoter.com. Facebook is David Promoter MD. But the main place that we want people to go, because there's great information there already, is brainwashbook.com. Brainwashbook.com. And you also have a, you have a podcast, Empowering Neurologist, which I'm super excited to, uh, to be rejoining you on. 
in the in the near future. Yes, the empowering neurologist, or what we call TEN, T-E-N, and that uh, there's a YouTube channel dedicated to that as well. That's awesome. Uh, well, Dr. Perlmutter, I know that I asked you this the first time that I had you on because I distinctly remember you kind of uh, you know getting emotional about it. So I'm excited to hear what your you know what your response this time is going to be. Um, you know, it's about a year later. What does it mean to you to live a genius life? I believe that uh, for anyone to live the genius life is to recognize what our gifts are and to exploit those gifts as much as we possibly can beyond our own self-interest. It's well said. It's beautiful. Well, I, uh, again, just want to say I appreciate you and thank you for coming over to my, to my little apartment in West Hollywood and, <laughs> and being here for this. And, uh, all you guys support David, uh, this, this book is great. Brainwash, um, highly recommend it. And, uh, yeah, thanks for doing what you, what you, you know, continue to do. And, and um, let me say thank you to, uh, as well for our friendship. I've really enjoyed it over the years. Likewise. To all you guys out there in podcast land, thank you so much for listening and uh, giving you know me the you know your attention for the last hour. Attention is valuable, uh, as you learned over the past hour, no doubt. So um, spread the message about what we're doing here at the Genius Life. Help it grow. Tag your favorite, uh, highlight your favorite quote from Dr. Perlmutter or I, and I will catch you on the next episode. Peace.